Greetings, this is Ginger Donnell. I'm your host for Artbeat Conversations, and I just wanted to take a moment again to thank you for tuning in and your continued support for this podcast. I've been having an incredible amount of positive feedback for this project, and I'm so thankful to all of the artists and listeners who have been participating so far. Um, Just a couple more episodes until I reach my year mark of having done this project. And it's because of all you out there listening that I'm doing it, and I really appreciate you and continue to email me, write me on Facebook or whatever, wherever you need to. Let me know how you feel about the project. And if you have any artists that you feel could contribute to the conversation, go ahead and shoot me an email, artbeatconversations at gmail.com. This next episode is our 18th installment, and this podcast features Kimmy Werner, who is a freediver, an artist, and a chef. And I have a small disclaimer that she's one of my oldest and dearest friends, so I'm just putting it out there now that we've known each other for a long time, and there's a comfortability that comes with that, so this conversation um, has that layer to it, which is, is kind of beautiful. And I hope you enjoy her story. I'm, I'm completely moved by the work sh- that she's doing now with Patagonia, being an in- ambassador um, for environmentalism and um, finding a way to combine the worlds of hunting and also conservation. And I hope that you, um, I hope that you take time to listen to this and um, become inspired by it because everything she does seems to be a, a a work of art. And she takes time and consideration in all she does, and she's truly positive and inspiring, and one of one of the most incredible people that I've had the privilege of knowing. So I just wanted to take a moment to let you know that I appreciate you all for listening, and let's hear from Kimmy Werner. Thank you so much. Art Beat. Art Beat. Art Beat. Art Beat Conversation. Art Beat. Art Beat. Art Beat. Art Beat Conversation. My name is Kimmy Werner. Uh, the first affiliation I would like to bring up is just my affiliation to you, Ginger, because I love you so much. And um, I'm just so happy to see your face and give ourselves an hour to talk. Like, we should do that more often, regardless of podcasts and stuff. And yeah, cheers to that. Ching, ching. Um, <laughs> I guess my other affiliation, most people know me these days as a diver. I'm a free diver, a spearfisher woman. I live in Hawaii and I catch my own food. Cool. But you also um, do some some art as well on the side, huh? A little bit still? I, um, I d- definitely, I do a lot of art. Um, I travel all the time for diving. So when I come home, I usually just feel so much like creative buildup within me that I just feel the need to come home and express. Um, I've been home for a few days now and I find myself just up at midnight 
scribbling and doodling and um yeah I, I do a lot of art I do paintings and um kind of a lot of underwater or up close sea creatures and abstract shells but um but I just like to switch it up all the time I like to not always have a certain style and just do whatever I feel like doing um and then I also I, I cook you basically turn anything that you do into art it seems like I can't say anything, but I definitely would say certain things like food is a big one for me. It just is something I I love to express myself and be creative with food. And I love feeding other people, as you know, mm-hmm. um, all the time. But but yeah, I do. I do. That's a very big compliment. I would hope that I can, you know, turn everything into art. But um, for the most part. I just, I just like to try and make everything beautiful, I guess. So let's, let's talk about your starting point. What, what's your story? Where, where are you from? I mean, I know where you're from, but (laughs) for all those who don't know. (laughs) I grew up on the island of Maui and I grew up in this little rainy town called Haiku. Um... I lived there for the first six years of my life, which isn't a lot, but it was probably the most influential years of my whole life to this date. Um, After that, I moved to Makawao in Maui and grew up there and stayed there until I was 18 and moved to Oahu, and that's where I'm at now. And who was the first person to introduce you to the ocean? The first person to introduce me to the ocean was definitely my dad. He was a waterman. He loved to fish. He loved to dive. Um, And spending time in the ocean with him was my absolute favorite thing in the world. Did you guys go often out? We did. We did. In in our earlier years, we did. So in my my earlier years, um, when we lived in Haiku, my parents were really poor. Like they really just didn't have much. They both worked their butts off, but nothing had really paid off for them um, yet in terms of finances. And so, so we we went in the ocean a lot. We depended on it for food, and um, and it was just our thing to do together as a family. But um, after after I turned, you know, after the age of six, um, I remember totally seeing my dad's company kind of start to take off. I remember him hand painting the name of his company on his truck. And at the same time, my mom was graduating from her community college with a nursing degree. And so they both started developing their careers at the same time. And, um, and we moved out of that rainy little shack in the boonies and we moved into a real subdivision. And I would say as that happened, we started spending less time in the ocean. I mean, still a lot. You live in Hawaii, you're a kid, you're going to find ways to get to the beach, but it wasn't as much of a religious family event, unfortunately. (laughs) And so, and so you lost, you lost that complete connection with the ocean for a minute. What did you substitute, um, your time with during, during those middle years? Peers, just complete peers. When I was when I was little and connected to the ocean the most, I also was um, 
I didn't have, I really didn't have anyone much around me. I mean, as far as socializing, I talked to rocks and animals. Like I didn't have any neighbors or anything like that. And so when I moved to the subdivision, so much less time was spent in the ocean. And I felt like a very normal, natural transition, actually, um, because you're getting to that age of like, I guess, being aware of what other people think of you and all that kind of stuff. And so I think from a big chunk of my life on from then, it was really about fitting in with others and trying to find your way with your own peers. Um, and no one else spent that much time in the ocean getting food or anything. So it seemed very normal for me to ride. I learned to ride bikes. I, you know, just did little kid stuff and hung out, I have a sister right I do I have a sister her name is Christy she's one year older than me um we have been inseparable our whole lives and she she's an awesome person she just we we've always had the same friends growing up um we're we're such different personalities in so many ways but she's been my backbone my whole life yeah, it seems like she's had a big impact being so close in age to you on just how you associate with the world. You know, having somebody to bounce ideas off of all the time must have been really nice. It was. I, ne- I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, but it's it's so true. And it's just somebody who's who's been there with you in your life through absolutely everything like really everything we we went to different in college we went our own ways and oh because she went to the mainland and so i didn't see her for a few oh you know i saw her off and on for a few years which was the only time in her life it's ever been like that but i think that only um made us closer and stronger because we realized like how bonded we were and I think we both just learned to complement each other even more after that distance yeah no totally and and so after high school and college and all of that when did you come back to the ocean well I mean I always I always you know I always felt definitely good in the ocean I always if I did somehow get the chance to go for a swim or, or a snorkel, I was still at home there no matter what. Um, I also just started, I started bodyboarding in high school. I had this super awesome group of girlfriends, you included, Ginger. <laughs> and um, we, were, we were the shit in high school. Like, you yeah. know, like when I talk about, sorry, I'm just rambling, but when I talk about peers and stuff and learning to fit in. I shouldn't say, I mean, it was a big chunk of my life, but I do feel like in high school, I, I found people, you know, we found people that we really 
connected with to the point where we didn't have to fit in. We could do, we could be ourselves. And, um, and I say that, that did bring me back to the ocean because we all got into bodyboarding together and it was just such a fun way to, to just get it all out of us, everything that we were going through and dealing with at that age. And the ocean did become our passions and our escape. And, and that probably was a big turning point for me, but it was, it was after that when I we all you know separated and went off on our own directions. Um, most of you guys to the mainland, and I went to Oahu, bodyboard in hand, ready to try and charge the waves on Oahu, and and I tried. <laughs> and I was never in that great of a bodyboard, but I tried. I had fun. I also made sure to keep canoe paddling because that was another big connection to the ocean we had. Yeah, Ginger. Yeah, I'll never Ma- forget. Maui County champ. <laughs> yeah, Nakaiwalu. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried to keep up with that as well. I, I um, I joined a really good canoe paddling club here on Oahu, and and I, you know, I was competitive at it I was I held my own um and these things really did help get me through life and they did they were my they were still like my relief my escape my outlet um but I I can't say there anything like the passion that I discovered from the moment I decided it's diving, that's what's missing. Like I just, you know, I graduated from college and I was working a job and I was at this place where I felt like I should have arrived somewhere to some sense of satisfaction. And I just felt the opposite. I felt so lost because now I no longer have this path to follow of, you know, going to school or whatever. And and it, it didn't feel right. And I kept trying to wonder what it was and look for it in all types of places, whether, you know, whether it was paddling or nightclubs or whatever. I was a you know young girl and just trying to find myself and I was painting, I was doing my passions. But, but then one day when I just saw some guys at canoe paddling, bring some fish to, um, to barbecue after practice, I just, that made me feel something seeing guys, bringing fish that we're going to eat. And it just made me remember what it felt like to feel that connection. And it got in my head and I just started realizing like, why am I not diving for my own food the same way that my dad was when I was little? Like if that's something that is possible for me to do today, for me to do right here, like these guys have just done, why am I not doing that? Because that's something I was raised to do and and then I started realizing how I, I didn't know how to do it you know when I was a diver I was like five four maybe through the ages of four to six would have been my my early dive career and um <laughs> you know it's not like I was spearing fish or anything I was just tagging along with my dad and and clapping for him when he would bring up fish and telling him what I wanted to eat but but nonetheless being in that world it was the most beautiful world I've ever experienced. And that feeling I felt being out there, I hadn't felt it in so long. And then the satisfaction of being able to clean fish and cook it and eat it and share it with people, I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and so I, I made up my mind right then and there that I was gonna learn to dive. And so I even asked these specific guys like to take me diving. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll call you. And that didn't happen. And um, and I started asking 
every diver I could just find or see or track down. Anybody that was coming out of the water who had dive gear on them, I'd ask them to take me spearfishing. And um, and nobody really took me seriously, um, which I can understand. Why, but why, I, why do you think that was? Well, I think that, um, that diving is something where... I think that um, if you don't know what you're doing, you can be quite a liability. Mm. Um, it's you, I. It, you can't really take a rookie out and go out and like expect to catch fish unless all they're doing is tagging along with you. But I think seeing that I was actually so gun ho to like shoot fish and catch fish, it just seemed like a babysitting job. Maybe I would think to most guys. Mm. Um, also, being that my whole resume was like, oh, yeah, I used to dive when I was, like, five. <laughs> Might have thrown them off a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, probably the fact that I was a girl uh, is just something that I don't, I don't think most any of them had experienced before as a girl saying, take me diving. So there's probably a lot of factors, and I actually find them all really understandable. Um, but I was persistent and um I kept stalking them <laughs> I kept stalking everyone <laughs> I knew and um eventually I was able to just get a hold of some diving equipment a simple three-prong spear and some fins and a mask and I actually just started going on my own and um and to my surprise I was able to catch fish and not a lot of fish and not big fish but just enough fish to eat and um and it's crazy because the only reason why I was able to do that is because of all those years spent with my dad. And I just, I remembered where fish lived. And I remember, I knew my whole fish identification because I always knew which ones I wanted to eat because I'd be the one putting in the orders, you know. So I knew which <laughs> ones to hunt. And, um, and yeah, and I would just try really hard. And um, coming out of the water with just like a couple little fish, but knowing that I did that, I got that. And I don't know, it, it was the most satisfying feeling I've ever felt. Like it was incredible to be able to bring this home, feed myself, feed my sister, you know, like it, it was a gift. It was such a gift to be able to do that. And, um, and that whole feeling that I used to feel of feeling like lost and like a loser and like just trying to find your way and not knowing how, um, it completely just went away. Nothing like it just the quality that this feeling added to my life was something that was so profound and awesome to me that I just, I knew like I'm going to hold on to this with, with both hands and both legs and everything I've got because I'm never letting it go again. So that would be my aha moment, I guess. <laughs> yes. like you've allowed diving to take you and introduce you into a world that people can only dream of like can you explain 
this roller coaster that's happening? Like, yeah, I mean, diving, diving is something that it, it was, it was always a roller coaster and it will always be a roller coaster. And that's what I love about it because it's always, it's the ocean. It's, it's, you're entering the ocean. You are down there living in the ocean when you're diving and, and the beauty of the ocean is just that it's it's always changing, it's always moving. It doesn't stay still for anyone, and um, and that's what makes it so fascinating to me. Is every single time you go diving, it's going to be a completely different experience from any other time that you've had before. And and for me, the whole learning process was just so invigorating and just intriguing, and um, I just didn't want it to end. So. So I definitely I savored it. Like I like I said, I knew what I had, so I I savored it. Like that's it's it's all I thought about when I would come home from a dive. I remember I would take a shower and I would just like close my eyes to wash my hair. And as soon as I would close my eyes, like all the fish would just be there, right on my eyelids. Like I couldn't escape it. It was it was everywhere. And um and I didn't I didn't want to rush through any of it because it was like the finest wine you just want to savor it and so I took my time I didn't use a spear gun at all for the first year of of learning and when I say learning um what I mean is that after after I learned to catch my own fish I started showing up at the barbecues bringing fish to add to the boys <laughs> what they had and um and soon my phone started ringing and I was getting invited to to come along with them and with every person I dove with, I just learned so much, so, so fast because everybody has so much to teach. Um, and eventually I fell into the hands of these super duper good divers, these um, national champions from Hawaii who pretty much had won all their trophies and accomplished what they wanted. And they just were stoked to, I came in at the right time and they just <laughs> saw me as their little project and they just trained me. And I mean, they, they showed me a whole side of diving that I had no idea was possible. Like, even though I knew I loved this and I knew these were my dreams, I, I didn't even know my dreams could be that cool until I saw them dive. Like, the way they moved in the ocean and the depths that they were able to hit and just the ambassadors that they were and the way that they carried themselves and the respect that they had that just shined through them. I mean, they were... They are. I mean, they're they're everything I I hope to be as a diver, and and so they they ended up um, training me. And for the first year, I refused to take a spear gun from any of them because I wanted to stick to my simple little three prong, um, just a rubber band at one end and a three prong spear at the other, and you just kind of. It's just a manual thing, and you just let it fly and pin the fish down, and you have to get really close to your prey in order to be able to hunt. And it's much—it's it's just a very primitive feeling when you hunt with such a simple spear. And I stayed with that <laughs> for like a year, and and then and then I finally took to the spear gun to go for bigger game fish. And and after about three years of of fishing and getting really good fish to eat. Um, I decided to follow in their footsteps and I entered the National Championships of Spearfishing, which was in Rhode Island. Um, and I ended up winning 
winning everything in that tournament. <laughs> so, Whoa. It was my first time diving outside of Hawaii, and I was so excited. I, I didn't have any sponsors. I didn't have, like, you know, I didn't have anything. So I, I really had to just fundraise just to even get there, and I got there with only four days in advance to the tournament. I never even dove for Rhode Island before, and I just <laughs> scouted really hard with my partner, and it was challenging for sure. It was nothing like Hawaii, but after four days of scouting, I got to a level of comfort that was enough, and I think just the honesty, the happiness I had in my heart and the gratitude I had in my heart is really what happened. I think it just... I got extremely fortunate in that tournament and um, and ended up doing really well and became a national champion myself. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing that um, that you you could allow yourself to have um, that kind of confidence, you know, like when you go embark in something so new and uncharted as like a dive in a foreign water, like how did you how did you muster up that emotionally like what was your process with that in order to find the courage my my process with that huh, you know i think i just was so so into the whole learning process of it and you find yourself just going to these stages of diving where you're progressing and you're getting better and better. And it's got to the point where, where I just, I really just think that I wanted, I, I felt that I was at a stage where I was ready to, to see how I would hold up and um, just how I would do in something like that. I think I really looked up, to the guys that taught me to dive and and you know and and they had been national competitors and one of them was a national champion and I looked up to them so much that I just it, it's like you know it, like uh, martial arts or karate you get your belts you know you you go through your stages and you you're, 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 you have so much respect for your sensei and you, you do your test and you get your different belts and you go up in rank and, and it's something that it's just, it's an honor that you have towards the person that taught you to show them, look at how much I'm learning. And mm -hmm. so I think for me, that really is what it was because I remember whenever I would think about the national championships in my head, that I didn't think about like, everything I would have to learn or Rhode Island. I wasn't that what you mean. I just thought about what it would feel like to win and be able to thank the people that taught me and make them feel proud of me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so that really, that would be my motivation to going into it. And I remember I asked my main mentor, Kalei, if he would be my partner. And he so just like, you know, no, Kimmy. And I like, <laughs> but you said, you said when I'm ready, you said that when I'm ready to do nationals, we can do a mixed team and we can be partners together and I'm ready and let's do this. And, and he's like, you know, I, I mean like when it, when nationals comes to Hawaii or when it comes to <laughs> California, he's like, do you understand it's in Rhode Island? Like, first of all, <laughs> 
you don't want to go dive in Rhode Island, Kimmy. Like, and you don't want to even spend the money to get there. Like, why don't we wait till next year? Next year is coming to California. And it really, really kind of disappointed me. Um, <laughs> and, but he was my, my, you know, my teacher. And I figured I'd listen to him. But I, it didn't feel good. And I was talking to my other mentor, um, this guy, Andy Thomas Essay. And telling him that and um and he just said oh no Kimmy like you gotta do it and he and he just said you know like I don't care if it's more expensive I don't care if the waters are more foreign if it's not in California or Hawaii or somewhere close to you he's like if you feel it right now that's what you're feeling in you you feel that motivation you feel that you're ready you feel that drive he's like that's when you got to do it. It's when you feel that drive, you got to do it. And all of a sudden, it was just like firework. Like, that's all I wanted to hear. And I said, yes, okay, are you going to do it with me? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to die in Rhode Island, Can you, you know? And, and so I was kind of like bummed out. Um, but then, then I had a long talk with Andy's wife, and um, who was just such an awesome, is such an awesome woman. And, you know, like... Not only would she let me dive with her boyfriend at the time, but when she saw how much I wanted it, she had a long, hard talk to Andy. And I don't know what she said, but all of a sudden he's like, okay, I guess we can do this, but I only am going to take off for a week, which means that we're only going to be able to scout for four days because then we have to dive the tournament and there's a war banquet and then we fly back and that's not a lot of time, Kimmy. Everyone else is going to be up there long before us, like taking off a month and, you know, at least and scouting for this. But if you really want to do it, then you should be doing it now and I will do it with you. And, um, <laughs> and, and yeah. And so then as far as mustering up the, the confidence, I didn't know. I was just, I was just so stoked because that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to do it with one of my mentors and I wanted to, to, Commemorate. I just wanted to celebrate everything that they taught me, and so from from then on, I was just um, under Andy's guidance, and he coached me through what it's like to to compete. and And so before nationals, I they started entering me in local competitions, and like, okay, you need to understand what it's like to compete, and and I actually was doing really well in them. But looking back on it in retrospect, it's so funny because I realized how much I was trying to give honor to my mentors. And at the same time, I look at how much they could have done with their or without it because they're already proud of me. Let me tell you about this place going to I had a tournament that that I was doing to try and train for nationals and um, the the you know I there was just I had this woman partner because I was 
entering his women's division of an international tournament that came to Hawaii. And and they were all against me diving with her. I really wanted a woman role model. I really wanted one so badly. As much as I love my mentors, I just wanted so badly a, to see a woman that I could look up to. And so I, I did I did find this this one this one um advanced woman diver and and once I started kinda gaining I would try and ask her for help, but she would never really talk to me and she'd flake out at me a lot and and once I once I started um entering these local tournaments I started getting a lot of recognition and and once I started getting recognition and whatnot she kind of then she reached out to me and asked me to be her partner in this um international tournament and just the whole way she, that what I don't know she had somebody else write me an email that told me if I enter this I'll be in all the magazines it's such a weird pitch Instead of just like asking me herself or, you know, like calling me back or whatever. And, and all the guys were like, all my, the guys that taught me were just so against it. And they're like, we don't, you know, think she's a good partner for you. And, and, um, and I should also mention that, um, my mentors, they, they were the dive partners of like the icon of Hawaii diving. His name is Gene Higa. And um, he, to this day, is probably the most iconic diver, I would say, that that the sport of spearfishing knows in Hawaii. And um, and they actually were, it's, they were a three-person team um, for nationals when it came to Hawaii. And Gene actually died in that nationals. And, I mean, it is, to this day, something that has affected the whole state of Hawaii. Um, as far as the diving community and it goes. And the guys that taught me were Gene's partner. Um, and that's because the way nationals is done is everyone se- separates and dives on their own, meets at the finish line, and um, adds up the points. And and Gene died. He didn't get in that day, and they had to go find his body and tell his wife and newborn baby. And, and, um, and Gene was the best. You know, like if it could happen to him, it can happen to anyone. And so I realize now that that my the, people, the guys that taught me could have cared less about competition at this point, and that all they wanted me to do was dive passionately and dive safely. Um, mm-hmm. um, but at the time, I I was still just out out to see how how good I could be or whatever and, um, and make them proud. And, and yeah, and so I tried to enter all these tournaments to prepare for nationals. And I just remember this one tournament that I entered with this other woman. Um, I made my flights to go to the big Island. That's where the tournament was to be held. And we we're going to scout the grounds together. And we agreed on it together. And when I got there, she said, I'm sorry, I have to go to the mainland. And she just left. And I had already paid for my flights. I was already there. And um, and that really sucked. And I was left on my own. And and so I was staying with my friend Andy, one of my mentors. He lived on the big island and flew back and forth. And he just was so upset. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll take off work for a couple of days to help you scout. But this is ridiculous. This is why we didn't want you to enter with her. This is mm-hmm. what we're trying to tell you. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause, and, um and and then I ended up like, you know, on the days where he couldn't scout with me, I ended up going on my own. And I actually ended up um, 
scouting really good ground, but fo following these fish into this one really surgy area. And um, I was so stoked to find this one species of fish that I would need for the tournament. And I followed it into this surgy area, and um, I guess I wasn't paying attention. And this one wave came and just washed me way up, way up onto the lava rocks where I was literally high and dry out of the water, fins and mask and everything still on, high and dry as the ocean just sucked away from me. And as it did, the next wave that came in was twice as big. And I was just right there about to get pounded onto some lava rocks. And so I dove into the wave. And as I did, and it broke and rolled over me, and the suction just took me back out to sea, I was going faster than you can imagine, and there were so many bubbles I couldn't see, and I ended up hitting um, a big rock, um, or this little like this like arm of reef that stuck out, and hit it so hard that when I it was like the first time I ever saw stars, and and I knew something was was up, and so I I slowly swam in that day, and. Um, I think I must have had a concussion because I ended up going back to Andy's house and then realizing that I didn't have any of my dive gear. And I was so confused. <laughs> I went back to the beach and was all sitting right there in the parking lot. I didn't quite get it. Um, when I was taking a shower in his bathroom that night, not telling him that I got stood up uh, or that I went diving by myself. Um, and... I was taking a shower and my hair was just falling out from the area where I hit my head. Oh but there were no signs. Like there was no open wounds because I had my wetsuit protected it. But I guess just the impact itself broke all my hair. And um, and so I went to bed and didn't say anything. And the next morning, I woke up with two black eyes. Oh and Andy was pissed. <laughs> And he called Kalei, my other mentor, who was on Oahu, and told him. And they were both just, like, pulling me out of that tournament as fast as they could. And when I went back to Oahu, saying, I still need to train. It's in, it's in a week. It's in a week. You know, I got the scouting. I know where the fish are. I got it down. I can do this by myself, even if whatever. I don't care. She's my partner. She doesn't have to shoot any fish. I want to do this tournament. I want to see how I do against these women from other countries. I want to be a part of this. I want to meet the girls from New Zealand and Australia and wherever. And and I want to represent Hawaii. Like, And I know where the fish are. Help me. And they just absolutely refused to let me dive. I had a lump like the size of a golf ball on my head by the time I got back. Um, and they tried, all of them had heart to hearts with me to get not into this tournament um but um but a week later I I did I did feel better um I asked Andy's lovely wife since they wouldn't support it to come swim out with me and just spot me while I did a few drops to see if my head felt okay and it did and um and I ended up getting first place in that international tournament and and I I don't know the more that I look at all of these things I just see how I was really doing it to just show them how much I cared <laughs> and how they really didn't give a shit. Like, yeah, they were really proud of me every time, but it, it actually, I can look back and see how with or without that, 
they were already there with me. So, <laughs> but I guess that's how I mustered up the confidence. I just wanted to be a part of their little cool club and and have them be proud of me, which was pretty unnecessary. But it definitely took me to places. <laughs> <laughs> so what was their response after you um won first place were they like oh good job <laughs> they were they were extremely extremely proud of me i also just remember that right at the awards banquet after our we got our trophy um my partner just like said okay i have to go now bye and took it home with her and like uh, and so they're all still just like is this really what you want to do? You know, like, but, but they were, they were really proud of my catch that day. More than anything, I think they were really proud of just my performance of how I was able to, to find all the fish that I found. And on my own, you know, I was always a tag along with my dad and with my mentors. And this was my time where, you know, um, I got to lead the pack. I was the one that scouted. And, um, and I think they were extremely proud that without them, I was able to take what, I learned from them and and come out with what I intended to do. Um, Did it also teach you about um, how to pick the people that you surround yourself with in life, kind of? Yeah, so much. You know, I think I'm just someone who I really, really, I love to see the good in people. And I, I will, hopefully, to the day that I die, because that's how I like to look at people. I like to look at people and just... I like to believe in other people because that's what helps me believe in myself. And so even when being warned about certain characters, it's hard for me to not give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's how I am to this day. But I realize not to, you can believe in the good of people and you can see the good in them and you can wish them the best and you can always be nice to them. But when it comes to things as intimate and, um, and, risky as diving you know as what as being in the ocean yeah that it really shows that there's only certain people that I want to surround myself with which is why when I speak back about to nobody taking me diving when I would ask and I keep saying oh it's understandable Mm. because I, I understand that now I understand that there's a reason why I had to go on my own and report my catch and report what I did and stalk these people until they really trusted that I was somebody worthy of taking with them. And it's because you do not want to be with someone that you can't depend on or that can't, you know, that doesn't have your back when shit goes down in the ocean. Like if you're going to go out there and put yourself in these situations, you really, you need, you need a partner. You need someone who is a true partner it's like um it's being part of a pack that's what you are it's a it's a pack of hunters and and that that primal type of relationship and the way that you communicate without words you need to have that bond in order to not only do it efficiently but to do it safely i feel and um and so to this day it's like i won't go taking as nice as anybody is or eager as anybody is I'm not going to just go take someone out diving. You know, it is, um, yeah, something I learned the hard way for sure. And so currently you have kind of 
um, you've done like the competitive aspect of the sport and now it seems like you've taken it into a, a different language of like almost environmentalism to a certain mm -hmm. respect. And can you yeah. talk about, can you talk about that part of your diving life? Yeah. So I, after I won, um, that Rhode Island national championships, I did get a lot of recognition and all of a sudden I got sponsors and all these people that believed in me. And, um, and I think that in the same, I, you know, I, I, I felt like it felt awesome. I felt like all my dreams are coming true. Like people believe in what I do and I didn't want to let anyone down. So I kept pursuing competition. Um, and actually my goal, I have my new goal, uh, now that I knew I, um, you know, following the footsteps of my, of my mentor and made them all proud. My new goal was to become world champion. Whoa, <laughs> so, girl. Yeah. Nice little, nice little humble goal. But yeah, I want to become world champion. And so you have to um, do a couple of nationals in order to qualify. And I did. And I was actually ranked <clears throat> the number one uh, woman in the country to go uh, represent in the world championships in Croatia. And I also was actually placed high enough where I'd also be an, an alternate on the men's team um, wow. that made it to Worlds. Um, awesome. And so, yeah, so I was I was looking good and, and sitting pretty, but that same day um, of my second nationals where I made the team and all that, I also found out that later that day that the Croatian Federation decided that women would not compete in their world championships. And that, um, you know, the, the local council and federation gets to decide what categories they're going to have and um, what they're going to allow. And, and they, there were, yeah, there were more, yeah, it just. Holy shit. That's nice. So, yeah. So, and, you know, and, and a lot of people, a lot of. The, the guys, you know, wanted to, like, fight it or boycott it. And I had, like, some, you know, U.S. federation saying, Kimmy, we're going to make a, a a world championships in U.S. this year just to – but it's like, I don't want something made for me to compete in so I can walk home with a trophy. Like, I wanted to go there and really become world champ. Like, and that's not going to happen. If you take that away from me, it's no longer the same goal. Mm. And – and I was bummed because I had like two solid years of complete, I'd say three solid years of pretty much complete tunnel vision for this. And, um, and it's, it's really all that I wanted and all I thought about and all I was working for. And I had everything in a row ready to go. And it was just like pulled from me. Like just, nope, there goes that dream. And of course there's the whole thing. Well, you could put in another two years and, see what happens world is every two years um <laughs> it's just when I thought about that option I was like no like <laughs> I really don't want to do that and I think that thought alone was interesting to me because it was almost just like a no I was almost over it like I almost got it over with and then when I realized it was that type of feeling, I was like, that's weird. It's not like that first nationals at Rhode Island where it was just like, 
la 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 i am here and i am grateful and i am loving every second of this i'm like paddling my kayak out to my spots you know it's like a race everyone's on kite and and, and i'm just like thinking back to our days at canoe paddle I'm like this is why i learned to paddle you know and i'm singing songs and i just like it didn't even matter how I did because I was so happy to be there because it was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And then I realized that every tournament I entered since that one, that's not how it felt. Hmm. It was like, it was like freaking work. It was homework. I got serious. Now I have sponsors. Like now I have people looking up to me. I can't get there in four days in advance. I need to get there way earlier than that. I need to be out in that water. I don't care how cold it is. Like, Get a thicker wetsuit, deal with it. I don't care if it's dirty, find those fish, you know, do this for a month. No, you're not shooting any fish or eating any fish because you're saving it all for the tournament. And then on that tournament day, you either go home with the, you know, a trophy or you don't. And that's the end of the story. And Whoa. like, yeah, I mean, that's really how it was. I mean, and if I won, it didn't feel the same, same wonderful bliss that I felt when I won that first nationals, when I won, I just felt like, okay, I defended it. I defended that title, you know? And if I didn't come in first, if I came in second or third, it felt like dead last. And I felt like if, if anyone said congratulations, I just felt so embarrassed. Like I just felt like they're just saying that, like I let them down. Like I should, it was crazy. The pressure I put on myself. And, but more than that, my regular everyday diving and, at home in Hawaii, you know, for food, I would be going out and getting food, but I wouldn't even really be seeing it as food. I would be seeing that fish as how many points is that? And, um, and so when, right when that chance of competing in world was taken from me and I realized, okay, well, my other option is putting in another two years and trying then, and I just thought, like, please, no, Kimmy, you're almost done. Like, you're almost ready to be done with that. And then when I realized that was how I felt about it, that made me rethink everything. Like, and it made me realize, like, oh, I'm not really stoked on this. Like, it doesn't feel as good to me. And I've been wanting to get this done with, get this goal accomplished so that I could go back to doing it for why I got into it in the first place, which is, you know, the simple act of going out and enjoying nature and coming home with dinner. And, and when I, when I realized that, I just thought like, well, I don't care if I'm not world champ, like I'm done. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and it was a feeling of defeat, you know, in its own way. It wasn't like, this huge like epiphany and I feel so great about it. It was a feeling of defeat. It was this feeling of, well, I guess I'm not going to be world champ, but I also guess that I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm done with this, you know? And, and, um, I guess I am giving up and, and I did, I walked away from competition, but, but doing that just, it, it it only just re-sparked and it was a transition it was kind of like I was lost for a little bit and and there were people who got really disappointed in me you know like not my mentors but other diet partners that I had 
learn from, you know, since then, because as you get better and better, your ability to dive with the best, it mm. opens up all over the world. And um, it's a very tight knit community. And, and people who I, you know, I, I was diving with at the time, like, um, definitely got upset with me. I was, you know, called a waste of talent. I was yelled at. I was, you know, I did, I did um, let people down that I really love diving with and, and whatnot. And I did feel like a big loser for sure. But how, um, how did you, how did you deal with that personally? Like what was your coping mechanism? Oh, depression and alcohol and like really I, I really went through I was you know going through other things in life as well um but um but yeah I I seriously was in a dark place and and it was a lot of things combined um but but and I didn't really know where to go with mm. diving because I did lose, I did lose the people that I was diving with at that moment because the people I had surrounded myself with were the people who were the best at competition, and that's what they were focusing on: is competition, competition. And and when we dove together, it was a beautiful thing because we pushed each other and brought out, you know, I, I learned so much from from these other partners but when I started pulling away from competition and not caring about it just not caring about it um you know I think I think it was um overall concern that they had even if it was expressed as anger or disgrace or disgust um but mm -hmm. I think that they didn't know what to make of me because they saw somebody who was so driven and who pushed them and who wanted this so badly immediately become someone who just didn't really care about it anymore. And I think they just wanted to shake me and wake me up and say, you've got this talent, get back on that path. Like stop, stop throwing it away. You're, you know, and, and that is what they said in harsh ways. And, um, and and um, and then I just kind of realized I can't die with people like that right now, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and it was sad. I mean, it wasn't just like oh, I realized that. It was like oh, it was, it was heartbreaking. And like, like I said, your your dive partner, um, it's it's a very primal relationship. It's you trust that person with your life. You communicate to them without words, and it becomes something that. I don't know. It goes it goes beyond regular above water relationships. Um and so to to be cut from that, it hurts a lot. Mm. Um and then also to kind of feel like um without that it's like the friendship's not even enough to you know, like it just it was hard it was just hard. Um but but, and, um, you know, I don't even know how I got out of that completely to tell you the truth. I think it was just a gradual thing um, as far as feeling super shitty about it all. Um, 
I don't know how I got out of it, but but I I finally did, you know, just um, start finding small moments of joy within diving again. Because for a while, diving actually depressed me because I thought about my loss mm-hmm. and uh, and and then after a while, it was just the simplest things. And diving started making me happy because I was even when I would continue diving with people who weren't competitive, I still had this noise in my mind of of just like you you know you didn't complete what you set out to do with competition and um, what's wrong with you, you know? Um, and that really sucks when that voice is in your head when you're trying to do your passion <laughs> and. Yeah. Um, no, that's not fun. And um, and it took me a while before I could actually find joy in it again. And it's funny because the joy didn't come from shooting fish and the joy didn't come from trying to get, you know, a big fish or a really hard to hunt fish to make myself think like, see, I am that good. You know, it wasn't like that. The joy came one day when I didn't get any fish and I felt like I really sucked. And right before I got on my kayak to paddle back in, I just told the guys I was diving with, can I just have one more drop? And I went down to the bottom of the ocean. And they all said they were just watching my every move. But what I did, they said, is I just um, put my, I was holding my gun, but I didn't even lay in a hunter's position. And I just put folded my arms um, in front of me and just laid down on them as if I were taking a nap. And I just laid on the bottom of the ocean. I don't know how many minutes went by, but I would say after about two of them, I felt this sense of peace. And I just felt this sense of reconnection. And and that feeling alone I knew this is where I belonged and I knew that everything was going to be okay. And I came back up from that one drop and I was, I felt better. I felt a lot better. And, um, and from that day on the satisfaction, um, just kind of came back in forms of going out with people who didn't have anything to prove and just wanted to get some dinner and getting little fish with my old three-pronged spear. And, um, and, and I felt good. sure that I was going to you know that I had lost everything all like the super competitive divers or just without competition what would I be but um but to my surprise I didn't like people still supported me and and I ended up getting just better companies to to support me like Patagonia Patagonia ended up becoming um one of my sponsors and they didn't care about competition they cared more about like what I was doing to help the ocean because I was doing all of these 
other things in the meantime, uh, helping with this movement of, of invasive species tournaments. And that's such a cool way to combine both of these worlds into where it's doing something so good for the ocean. Um, about 50 years ago, Hawaii's government imported these three fish from Tahiti. It's the to'ao, the ta'ape, and the roi. And they just had the idea that um, two of them would be a nice snorkeling attraction for tourists, and one of them would be a, a cool food source to add to our food. <laughs> so stupid. stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's <a> good idea. <laughs> So, of course, um, these fish have all pretty much developed and multiplied out of control and taken over their reefs and are eating the native fish. Um, and one of them, the roy in particular, it's this like total ambush predator that has no natural predators in Hawaii. And it also happens to be one of the hottest fish to develop the cigaterra toxin, which means that it's poisonous for us to eat. Oh. So that that was supposed to be the food source fish, by the way. <laughs> <Shut> <laughs> so I promise, I promise. I'm like, oh, we don't have many groupers. Let's bring in a grouper. Um, and and not, yeah, you can't eat it because you'll get deathly ill. Um, so it's not even fished for. Um, and they're really bad. They a, a two-pound roy, which is a very small roy, um, will eat approximately 150 native Hawaiian fish a year. And so, and you know, and they're everywhere. So, so some of my friends on Maui started this movement, and these are all guys even like beyond the generation of my mentors. So these are like old national competitors that you know, came full circle a long time ago and they're just like, Kimmy, you know, like, I don't really want to do another competition unless it's this type of competition. And they're like, started all off backyard grassroots style, the Roy Roundup, um, inviting spearfishers to come enter this dive tournament where it's the only bad tournament where there's not going to be any bag limits. There's not going to be any size restrictions or requirements because any, you know, dead Roy is a good thing for Hawaii's ecosystems because they're destroying the whole everything of the reef. And, um, and, and it's amazing because the whole community just got on board with this and said, you know what, we're not going to wait for some government agency to fix this problem. Like we can be a part of the solution and scientists got involved, conservationists got involved, rookie divers got involved. And because of the people who were started in this movement, the best spearfishers in Hawaii all got involved. And it turned out that spearfishing is the most effective way to take out these fish because Unlike netting or, you know, fishing with a hook and line, like, you can target them selectively. Mm -hmm. There's no bycatch. You're not going to, like, net up a whole bunch of native fish and the invasives. You can only take out the invasives if, if that's all you're supposed to be hunting for. And, um, and you know, knowing that, like I said, a two-pound roy eats 150 native fish a year, like, to do the math of how many fish you're potentially saving is amazing um and then the roys 
those thin clippings would be donated to the scientists and to the University of Hawaii so that they could find out more about this cigatera toxin that's becoming more prominent. And, um, and the fish themselves were donated to organic farmers who were able to turn them into fertilizer because they're actually good for the ground. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so it just, um, that, that ended up being quite eye-opening to me. And that was something that companies like Patagonia started realizing that I was really becoming passionate about and started, they started supporting me. And then, and then, um, yeah. And then with, with their support, I was able to, to start traveling the world because I realized that although I traveled for competition, I don't want to go someplace just to scout for a month and not even like really, you know, eat fish or whatever, just to go shoot a bunch of fish to get a trophy. You know, I'm not, I don't have judgment towards, towards competitions. They are done. I must say they are done in a way with a system that, um, that, that makes sense and that makes it, sustainable but I'm just saying for the reasons that I got into diving is not to look at fish's points and I and realizing that that did make me unhappy after a while I know that when I travel I want to travel because I want to go to a place and learn about the culture and really feel the culture live the culture embrace it you know I want to go there and I want to learn about the little little itty bitty local community that I'm staying in and what they care about and what they need and how they eat their fish and just shoot a few fish and share it with them or, or barbecue it with some friends on a beach fire. And that's why I want to travel and dive, not to leave with or without a trophy. Um, mm. And that's what I started doing. And, um, and, and the more that I did that, the more your eyes just open to, to what's going on in the ocean and what's going on in the world. And the more you start caring about it. And, um, and before I knew it, like, yeah, I just, um, I just realized that my main passion is making sure that we're taking care of the ocean so that the future generations can have the pleasure of feeding themselves naturally. Have you seen more good than bad as far as like like devastation or lack of de devastation in reefs and in like fish populations? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, is it saddening to go to all these places or do you feel like it's not as bad as we're building it up to be environmentally? Like what's your what's your overall take on it from being a woman who's in the ocean 80% of the time? Well, I would say that um, when I when I travel, um, I mean, no matter what, you're always going to come across some things that will make you sad. But no, for the most part, I would say when I travel, I'm going in search of of healthy ecosystems, and I'm putting myself in places, whether it's because it's too deep for most people to get there, or or it's just really remote, um, or it's really well managed. Um, but I, I like to put myself in these healthy 
ecosystems so that I can learn about them. Um, saddening to me is that Hawaii used to be one. Mm. Um, I, cause I had the memories in my head from being a little kid. And a lot of times when I dive these other places, I feel like I'm diving Hawaii when I was a little kid. Mm. And, um, and knowing that how much it's changed, um, it, it can be super depressing and, and, and if I let myself ponder on that too much, I find that I don't get myself anywhere good. So what I try to do is look at the positive um, and look at what works. And I'm still trying to figure it out because I don't have it figured out because no matter what I find that works in some place where they have a thriving, healthy ecosystem. And so I try and see what are they doing? How, how are they doing it? And I can, I can answer those questions. But a lot of times when I try and apply that directly to Hawaii, it either feels a little too late or it feels like the population is just too much to do that. Or, or there's, there's other challenges that apply that makes it challenging. But the one thing that I am seeing that is a very common common thing in the places that, um, that have well-working ecosystems that it's not just because oh, there's so little people, um, would be because um, the ecosystems are being regulated and managed by the teeniest, tiniest communities. That's one thing that I've noticed. It's not a system that starts from the top down with some overall big state or agency or something saying, okay, here's, here's the rule and here's how we're going to do it because it's too disconnected that way. The ones that I see that have really well-running ecosystems, the rules start from the bottom up and it starts from the tribes or the, you know, villages. Um, teeny tiny little communities saying, this is what I see. People who actually depend on the resource and mm -hmm. use it Again, though, working with scientists, working with, with this, this is happening. This is happening in places where Palau, for example, um, the, the fishermen, the scientists, the conservationists, they're all, they're all, you know, working on these like small grassroots community levels, um, working together, sharing their knowledge and making up their own rules. And if you just drive like from one little teeny state to another, when I say state, I mean like really like you can drive a mile and be in a whole other state. And um, <laughs> that's how it is. It's like teeny tiny little states. Um, but you can, you go to the next state and the same fish you're just able to catch there, you're not able to catch it here. Because this tribe says, no, we've seen a decline in this. Um, and, you know, and, we see that the fish over here are actually spawning at this time. So we're not going to and and um, and you go into the next state and it's it's even different than that, you know? And um, 
and that seems to really work. And also, um, when I ask them, you know, how does this also work? They just say like, well, it's also accountability. Like when everything is done on a community basis like that, it's like, I need to be accountable. I need to be accountable to what I'm doing. Cause if not, I have to answer to my dad or my family or, you know, then my family has to answer to the rest of the tribe or the chief or whatever. And, um, and so they have, you know, these, there's just these like systems of community on a grassroots level. And, and that's what determines their management. And I do think that that is something that we can apply. I think that um, if we were to let different communities come together and decide what's right for them and start there and then go from the bottom up, I do think that we could make really big changes. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm still really just trying to figure it all out myself, but that's one, that's one really common thing that I've seen is just um, starting on grassroots level equals a plan that makes the most sense in the end. Yeah, no, and I think that, I think that it's completely true you know, on not even around like ocean ecosystems, but around everything, you know, I mean, and I think governments don't necessarily want us to start thinking like that, you know, because right. it takes them out of the equation. But I think it's really healthy. Right. And I mean, I just in this, I didn't even think of like how I just told you the whole story of the Roy Roundup, you yeah. know, and all of that. And so it is obviously something that I can apply to my own home because I have applied it. Already. And it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's working, you know, yeah. like imagine if we left it up to freaking some crazy agency to see how they're going to take care of their problem. That would scare me to death. Like it was their idea to bring these fish here to begin with. It's not like that was something that like community members like voted for and thought of, you know, like that was just, I don't even know why that happened. And it was probably decided by people who had never even gone in the ocean in that area. Exactly. And that's, one way where I just always feel kind of like very much um, in the middle of things because I, you know, I, my goal, I guess, is to try and help and emerge the worlds of conservation and hunting because I think they go so hand in hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of hunters I know think of conservationalists as like these crazy, angry vegans who just want to take away our rights when they don't even understand anything, you know? And <laughs> and I think a lot of the conservationists that I know and work with think of hunters as like these trigger-happy, blood-hungry people who don't give a shit about the environment because they just want to kill things. And, um, and it's not that black and white. It just absolutely can't be. And, um, but, but, you know, even knowing that that I do, I do, my goal is to just like merge those two, I don't want to say two sides, but you know, those two mindsets, like to have more conversations. Um, you know, I really think, I really think it's important that, that conservationists, that scientists, that government, that people, that they listen to the actual fishermen and the people who are using the resource because they can learn so much too. And I think that, 
even if your intentions are so the best on trying to save something, if you don't have a personal connection to it, if you don't know it the way that I know it, don't just go draw a circle around a map and say, this is going to be a marine sanctuary. So let's say, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like, we're just going to show why we need to all have conversations. say to inspire people to like help change things like what's something that anybody can do you know in a daily life um a a lover of the ocean okay so for me like my you know this is a constant I am such a work in progress with my thoughts so but what has currently been inspiring to me which I would hope um would resonate with other people Um, would honestly just be the little piece of advice I was given um, about free diving in general. And and this advice was given to me by world champion Martin Stepanek. And he's not a spearfisher, but he's he's a depth free diver. And he offered to come train me once. And I remember the advice he gave me before I did my deepest dive was when you feel the need to speed up, slow down. Mm. And, um, and I, I just, I couldn't find that to be more true. Um, in free diving, definitely, you know, when you, when you feel the need, like I'm running out of air, I need to get there faster and to kick harder, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like that is the most true indicator that you need to slow down. And, of course, underwater, you know, speeding up burns your oxygen, raises your heart rate, and and slowing down conserves it all. Um, and that little advice alone is like how I was able to to do my my deepest free dive that day to 159 feet, and it's how I was able to do my longest breath hold of four minutes and 45 seconds. But it went way beyond that, and that has been one of the driving mottos in my life now is just when we feel all this pressure and all this need to speed up to fix things like we really need to just slow down and that going back to a simpler life is not a step backwards I I just um I think that those things alone are what I'm personally trying to explore in everything that I do. And, and then I also just think that it comes back to kind of what we're, we're reiterating on this whole conversation is just that we need to be able to talk to each other. Like mm. no matter how different we are and how different we think, we have to be able to at least be open enough to have a conversation. In fact, the more different we are, the more we need to have that conversation. Um, And I think that's how change is going to be made. If you could say one thing to the world, like this is your forum, this is your soapbox, you know, um, who knows who's going to hear this out in the universe. What would you want to say? I just guess that like the one thing 
I would just want to say is what comes to mind right now is just that being being a good person by just um, trying your best to be a good human, I think is the most underrated quality in the world. And, um, and you know, a lot of times people will say like, oh, so out of like cooking or your art or your diving or, you know, conservation or competition or what is it that you want to be remembered by when you leave but it's like if I really had to think of that like it would just be I would want to be remembered by just legitimately trying to be a nice person and um and that I think is the key that just bringing it all back to having those conversations is like just really trying to look for the good in other people even if they're not being good to you or even if they're not, um, you know, doing what you agree with. And I'm not saying surround yourself by these people or, or be a doormat, but just, but just trying to, trying to be a good human to the fellow creatures in this world, I think is the most underrated quality ever. But I think that, that making it more important is only going to make everyone's lives a lot better. And it's only going to make us all just more authentic humans as ourselves. Um, and so that would be my soapbox is just to, to be good to one another and, um, be that, and be good to yourself and, and just strive just to be a good human, forget everything else, be a good person and, and be nice to people. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. And it kind of, it kind of taps back into that advice you were giving of like, when you feel like speeding up, slow down, like when you feel like you need to like, not associate with somebody like maybe just shoot them with like a rainbow of love and then walk away (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just I mean don't feed that fire of negativity because that just yeah seems to like reverberate throughout the world you know and yeah the environment totally and like when I say that I, I absolutely don't mean don't don't stand up for yourself. Don't stand up for what you believe in. Don't don't stick up for yourself if someone's treating you wrong. Like it's all it's. I think it's it's the opposite. It's like the more you're able to respect your fellow human, the more you should be able to respect yourself and own your own voice, and um, and that you will be able to to communicate things with respect, and that will in turn only give you more respect but ultimately just like also make everything around you a little better On my own, on the way 
freedom over the sea But I watch my home get further from me Sometimes I reach to meet the clouds But I always keep one foot on ground My horizons widen me The nights are cold here, sometimes lonely Eyes are open, so much to see. Sometimes they long for familiarity and aware on distant lands. I always keep one foot on sand. Aloha nui e Hawaii Aloha nō e kuone hanea uere 